Welcome to your commercial-free, uninterrupted investment show, sponsored by the SEC-registered investment firm, Wilsey Asset Management, a fiduciary firm owned and operated by President Brent Wilsey, who has been putting clients' investment needs first for over 40 years. The Smart Investing Show has been giving unbiased financial information for over 27 years on local radio stations right here in San Diego, providing you with fundamental analysis on stocks and investments you want to know about. Now, here are your hosts, Brent and Chase Woolsey. Well, hello and welcome to Smart Investing Show. I'm Brent Wilsey, president of Wilsey Asset Management. Great to have you here on the show today. We've got a lot of great things to talk about. I think you've heard about this little thing called AI. Well, we're seeing some things that the outlook so far is maybe not as good as you think it is. You hear a lot of the good stuff. We'll talk about some surveys that, well, not so great there. Also, to talk about investing technology, what is going on in 2024? A lot of excitement there, but will it last? We'll talk about that. And then we got to talk about inflation. We'll talk about the CPI and the PPI. What is going on in inflation? Kind of update you. Only uh, February here, but uh, a lot of things we've got to talk about there. Chase, what do you got? Well, as always, we're going to take a closer look at some uh, popular companies, kind of dig through the, the fundamentals, look at the valuation ratios, check out their balance sheets, see if these companies are worth maybe further research, maybe give them a, kind of a buy hold or, or sell rating, just kind of based off that preliminary data that we'll look at. Uh, companies we're going to look at today, Arm Holdings, I know there was some craziness <laughs> in that stock. I think it was last week. That thing was all over the place. It shot through the roof, I know. Uh, Freeport McMoran, we're also going to look at Ralph Lauren as well. I, I know uh, luxury retail has actually been holding up, uh, I'm going to say quite well. So excited to take a look at those three companies. Uh, we'll see if we have time as well. We, we may look at Eli Lilly if time permits. That's that diet drug, right? Uh, yep, yep. yep. Uh, GLP-1s, I think they're called. What are they called? GLP-1, I think that's the, the technical term oh, for them. okay. I, I did not know that. I just know that you take them, you lose weight. Well, we'll talk more when we get to that company. Let's, let's talk about uh, AI, the uh, outlook so far, and AI is artificial intelligence. Uh, Microsoft spent about $7 million per second ad uh, for the Super Bowl promoting their co-pilot AI service. Now, some results are not coming in so good for co-pilot with some testers after using the software for more than six months, said it was useful, but doesn't live up to the price. Uh, another survey adopted said that the initial excitement wears off with a 20% drop in use after only one month. Executives Microsoft expect billions of dollars in new revenue as a search engine Bing would take market share from Google. Now, I, I did want to clarify as well. I, I, I think I heard you right. I think you said $7 million per second. I think 30, it was 7, I thought, I thought I said 30, 30 seconds. Second. Did, did I say per second? I, I don't I, know I, if I zoned out or you missed it, but I'm like, wow, that'd be a really expensive, that'd be expensive. commercial. <laughs> that'd be very expensive. I thought I said per 30 second, but uh, yeah, we'll make sure. Yeah, it's 30 seconds. Hey, you know what it was back in uh, 1967 when the Super Bowl first started? 1967, let's see, it's at $7 million, what, like $50,000 or something? Pretty close, 37500 That was the first ad back in the first real Super Bowl. Wow, that... You know, it'd be a great deal now, yeah. yeah. Inflation. Inflation <laughs> hits everything. We'll hit that later. But uh, kind of referring back to this uh, Bing situation, unfortunately, nearly a year later, after all this kind of craziness with Bing versus Google, Bing has only seen less than a 1% gain in market share. And I remember when this was coming out last year, and it was like, oh, Bing is going to take... Yeah. I don't know anybody that uses Bing. I, I still use I, Google all the yeah, time. I still Google so easy. Yeah. I, I haven't heard anybody making the shift. Uh, clearly, as we said, 
less than 1% gain in market share. Also, to a survey from Boston Consulting Group said that roughly 90% of business executives said generative AI is a priority for the company this year. However, 66% said it would take a couple of years for the technology to move beyond the hype. 70% of those executives said they were only going to do small investments with limited testing. Now, I've been concerned about the overhype of the money going into AI and the return on investment taking years to pay off. This would not be the first time on Wall Street that the hype has sent stocks into orbit, only to come back down to earth when reality sets in. And, and Chase, we, we've talked about this before the show. I mean, what we're seeing happen, there's so much hype and everybody's like buying you know, the AI and the chips and all this. What happens if it doesn't live up to the hype? And, and as we said, these executives say, yeah, we'll try it, but we're not going to give you 100% of our commitment. We'll just test it for a couple of years. And all of a sudden, you got this big inventory of chips and AI, and it did not live up to the hype, which we've seen before. Remember, what was it called? It was not with the Bitcoin. It was the false pictures. What were they called? Oh, uh, NFTs. NFTs. Yeah. Oh, the NFTs. You're missing out on this. And and all of a sudden, nothing. Now, AI is maybe a little bit different than that, but I still believe it's overhyped, and it's not going to live up to that hype. Well, I don't think you put it in here, but we were talking on the way down about, uh, what was our buddy Joe that wasn't at the meeting oh, or yeah. something? Yeah. <laughs> you, you know, when, when we try to write these for the newsletter, we, we try to keep them, you know, somewhat short. But there was so much when I read about that. It was actually Bob. And, Bob, and what, what Bob people, not Joe. Not, yeah. <laughs> that's okay. Bob, Joe could be anybody. But what it is is that you 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 go to, you want to you summarize a meeting so you understand what, what's going on. And so people are using AI to summarize the meeting. Well, what came out in this one example that they were talking about was Bob at the meeting was talking about the software development and all this stuff here. And then they said, well, wait a minute. No one talked about that. And there was no Bob at the meeting. <laughs> so, so you're getting information that you're going to look like a fool where you come in like, well, I know what Bob said. Well, Bob was in the meeting, so you're an idiot. Yeah. I mean, and this is what's going on. So how can you rely on this information? We've talked about this in the past, six, 12 months ago, to where many times AI pulls information that is not true. Yeah. And I, I mean, I, I was thinking about this this morning as well, about this whole co-pilot thing where I think it's like $30 extra a month or something is what they'll charge. But I, I was thinking about this is I, I don't see this necessarily helping kind of your lower tier employees, so to speak. Maybe this is more of your upper middle management that would use some type of software if it was accurate. Right. But then it becomes, okay, well, if it does make your upper middle management more effective, then do you lose the lower management and you have layoffs if it truly became as effective as people think? But then guess where the other problem ensues? Now Microsoft loses the subscriptions for all of those people that they lay off <laughs> the Microsoft <laughs> Office. I mean, there's just so many thoughts that go on in my head here. And the big one is, again, I just I don't see this as being a profitable. I, I mean, frankly, in our business, I, I'm not going to add. I know we're not going to add Copilot for the foreseeable future. No, I don't no. see any way that we generate value from it, and especially trustworthy information trustworthy value at this point in time of being able to say, oh yeah, I don't need to check that information. I trust what the AI said. It's like, clearly not. You know, I mean, and until it gets to that point, what's the point of having it? And, you know, and I didn't get the Microsoft commercial. I'm sitting there watching like, oh, young people, oh, we can start a business and so forth. I, I don't understand. Maybe I'm thick, but I don't understand, well, what business are you going to start just because you have AI? Did, did I miss something there? Uh, honestly, I didn't even remember it. I think it was that good of a commercial. So. <laughs> yeah, and it had like young people like, oh, oh, I'm not going to do this. I'm going to do. 
and they were going to use AI somehow to start a business. And it's just like, well, what business are you going to start just because of AI? I, I, I don't know. Yeah. I, and I, I, I did want to say as well, I mean, we, we've talked a lot too about NVIDIA and, you know, I, I again, give credit to NVIDIA. Uh, I think Jensen Wong's the CEO. I mean, oh, he's, he's done, done a tremendous job. job. But I mean, my concern with, with NVIDIA in particular is, again, that they're not a software company. They're a chip company. And my concern is if all these people buy these chips and let's say, you know, the testing is for a couple of years, maybe in two years, everybody now has all the AI chips that they need for the next five, seven, 10 years. NVIDIA's revenue could fall off quite dramatically. dramatically. And now their PE multiple is problematic. And now you're not getting growth. I mean, this is where buying into the hype, it, it just doesn't work as an investor because it, the problem's twofold. Number one, their earnings multiples are way too expensive right now. So all of a sudden that, that growth dissipates. Now that earnings multiple has to come down. But also too, as I said, the growth dissipates. So those earnings estimates, they come down as well. So now you're not only losing on multiple contraction, but you're losing on estimated earnings growth going forward. And all of a sudden that stock price collapses very, very quickly. I'm not saying I know that's what's gonna happen, but I can tell you we've seen this happen many times in the past before. And also, too, when you actually think through conceptually, when are these profits going to ensue for these companies? I, I still don't see it for, for many years to come. And, and Chase, uh, and I think NVIDIA reports next week, so try to remember not next week because we don't have all the data yet, but the week after, it would be nice to look at NVIDIA, n not to just see what the earnings estimates are, but the range. And we talk about that. And, and you could have a range you know, of you know, 50 percent or whatever because that tells us that it's not very sure so and they probably have I'm guessing 30 analysts so I, I would love to look at that next not next show but a week from next show or two weeks I guess from this show to see what the range of the estimates are and what what happens so we'll, we'll have to kind of remember to do that yeah so speaking of technology let's talk about investing in technology because more strange news with the markets as of the week ending February 9th the Nasdaq was up 6.5 percent this year and the S&P 500 which is also heavily weighted in tech companies has increased 5.4 percent 2024 this compares to return of just 0.84% for the broader Russell 2000 index. The S&P 500 has increased 14 in the last 15 weeks, something we have not seen since the end of 1972. I'm not saying the market is going to crash tomorrow, but the 73-74 market period had a very long bear market. The difference here is that our market is so concentrated in technology that I think we could see a bear market but many companies will still gain going forward because of the great value that has just, well, been ignored. Yeah, and an, another example here of the exuberance in technology would be the fact that since the 2008 financial crisis, U.S. companies with dividends above 5% gave investors a return of 450%. Yeah, it still sounds pretty That's good, pretty good. You know? yeah. <laughs> But over that same time frame, companies that don't pay a dividend have returned nearly 1,200%. Going back to the 1870s, I mean, this just flies in the face of normal behavior. The excitement in tech has led to some major gains, again, for the big tech companies that we've talked about. And Microsoft, in particular, is now the most valuable company with a market cap around $3.1 trillion. The crazy thing here, that is almost twice the $1.6 trillion value for the entire S&P 500 energy sector. Can you repeat that? Because that's very important to hear that again. I mean, it, this tells you how crazy things are. So Microsoft's 
Microsoft's market cap of again around 3.1 trillion. This is when I, I think it was down a little bit this last yeah, week, but yeah. we'll still say it's around 3.1 trillion. It is almost twice the 1.6 trillion of the entire S&P 500 energy sector. I mean, you think about Chevron, yeah. Exxon, Occidental, Valero. I mean, those those are some good names. There's a lot more out there, right. and they still aren't even <laughs> half of Microsoft's entire market cap combined. But the crazy thing we look at here, too, is if you look at the annual free cash flow for Microsoft of around $67 billion, well, it is less than half the $135 billion from these energy companies when we're talking about that free cash flow. So again, more than twice the size, but less than half the free cash flow. I, I don't know. I, I, the math just doesn't make sense. Doesn't make sense. And, and I do not know what will cause a drop or when it will happen. I just believe many investors do not realize the risk that they are taking by investing heavily in tech into technology, and unfortunately, all parties, well, they do come to an end at some point. <laughs> they do come to an end. And it's just, and, and it, we, we try to give you logic, and it doesn't mean that NVIDIA saw, saw uh, yesterday uh, a, a target new target price for NVIDIA, $1,200. Is it possible? Yeah. Sure. But is it likely? No. I mean, you just get this hype that people keep feeding on. I've seen this so many times in my 40 years plus of doing this that I just won't fall for it again because this is why people don't make money. They they go for the hype and the excitement. And we talk about we're very boring. We buy food companies, financial companies, energy companies, very boring stuff. But we don't have those big peaks and those valleys. And you will not stay invested. Uh, it's been proven that once you lose about 30% of the investment, uh, you usually panic, your emotions take over, and you get out. Just, just kind of happens. And, and I was kind of looking, you know, people have kind of fell back in love with Tesla again, you know, last year. Yeah. And, well, it's kind of struggled a little bit this year. But, uh, you know, from the dip last year, it, it's still up about 77%. But you go back to the hype back in 2021, Tesla's down 50% still. Yeah. And, I mean, I'm not saying that's going to happen with all the Magnificent 7 companies, but that very well could happen with NVIDIA where you go down 50% like Tesla, and Tesla's still expensive, yeah. where maybe now for 5, 10, 15 years, you've just made no money in these companies. And, you know, yeah, we, we could be the boring guys in the room, but I'd rather be the boring guy that doesn't lose 50% in my portfolio over a three-year period. And, and again, I've talked about people, it's easy to say the numbers, but to live through it day after day after day where you keep seeing your money go down and down. And I know people sold out Tesla. We've talked to people, yeah, I lost money on Tesla, they, they sold out. You're gonna do that because it wears on you day after day and you won't stay with that. So that's why you've gotta have some stability when it comes to investing and you don't pay for the hype. Well, I, so. I mean, I'll tell you too, it, it wears on us that yeah, we don't have Nvidia. It, right. it, it, it is difficult to watch things go up, but I'd rather miss out on the upswing then ride it down to the downturn. And yep. you don't know when that inflection point is going to come is the problem. That's true. Well, very important is inflation. So let's talk about the CPI that came out this past week. And CPI stands for Consumer Price Index. The Consumer Price Index caused a lot of concern and sent stocks lower on that day as the reading came in above expectations. Frankly, looking through the data, I don't think the numbers were that bad. CPI rose 3.1% compared to last year, which was above the expectation of 2.9%, but was lower than the reading of 3.4% in December. Core CPI, which excludes food and energy, rose 3.9% and came in above the expectation of 3.7%. This reading matched December's 3.9% rise, which was the smallest increase since 
May of 2021. Now, it's important to remember that the numbers don't always go to the straight line, and I believe this report should not have a major impact on the Fed's rate decisions, especially when looking deeper in at the numbers. The shelter index, again, we keep talking about this, again, continue to be a heavyweight on the report as it climbs 6% compared to last year. This increase accounted for over two-thirds of the 12-month increase in core CPI. It was also interesting that there was a little bit of de, uh, divergence from uh, between the rent of the primary residence, which was up 0.4% in the month, compared to the owner's equivalent rent of residence, residence which was up 0.6% in the month. And that equivalent rent of residence is just crazy. We'll talk about more of that when we finish this, this data for you. Uh, I believe this is a silly metric that distorts the CPI level. Yeah, I mean, if you look at it, the owner's equivalent rent is obtained through surveys and asks members of a household, if someone were to rent your home today, how much do you think it would rent for monthly, unfurnished, and without utilities? I mean, I just, <laughs> I, I don't believe that this is a great way for tracking shelter inflation and that these numbers should be taken with a grain of salt here. Other areas of the report that continue to see positive deceleration or even deflation in some cases, the energy index, again, that was down 4.6% compared to last year with gasoline falling 6.4%. Food at home showed a gain of just 1.2%, which compares to a peak of 13.5% in August 2022. <laughs> That's a, a big difference compared to, again, 2022 there. I will say food away from home did have a larger increase of 5.1%, which likely stems from higher wages and the elevated demand we are seeing at restaurants and bars. By the way, I don't think we'd be seeing that if we were having a weak or bad economy. Overall, as I said, I don't think this was a bad report, but investors need to realize that the Fed, well, they're not going to be cutting rates six times this year or no. five times this year. No, I, I'm still holding my three, maybe four times that we're staying at. But but I want to go back to this thing about uh, the, the what's it called, the owner's equivalent rent. I think it's the dumbest thing ever because everybody, when you own your own home, you always think your home is worth more than anybody else's on the block. You think you could rent it more than anybody else could be. It's just a silly number because, yeah, I can rent my house out for, oh, I think $25,000 a month. That's what I think it's worth. And the other thing is these people, it's not having an impact on their inflation, their personal inflation. Yeah. But, yeah. I mean, it, it, it is weighing on the numbers and weighing on the Fed's potential decisions. But I, I'm glad that the Fed says, I mean, you've listened to a couple of them come out and they say, oh, I mean, PCE is more the, the metric we're looking at. So we'll see what we get in PCA because the shelter index, it's just ludicrous, especially when you start looking at actual rents and actual leases that are getting signed. You're not having this type of rent inflation. It's just ludicrous that, that this is a report that weighed so heavily on the markets. And again, that's why we're not short-term traders, because you dig down into the numbers, and it, it, I mean, it's it's not great, but it, it's not that bad. Well, that came out, I think, on Wednesday, and markets went down. Thursday, went back up again, because, oh, that's not that bad. But uh, but I still don't know when they came out with this owner's equivalent rent, but I really wish they'd get rid of it, because it's not a true number. It's a silly number. Uh, they should just throw that one out and not use yeah. it. I, yeah. So well, let's move on to PPI because that is producer price index. And I, I got to say, we're a little bit disappointed uh, on what the producer price index was because uh, I, I thought we would see better numbers. In January, PPI rose 0.3% compared to the prior month, which was the biggest move since August and was well above the expected increase of 0.1%. Core CPI was even more troubling considering it saw a 0.5% increase, 
which easily topped the expectation of an increase of just 0.1%. Now, if you look at the year-over-year increase, the numbers are less concerning. Headline PPI increased just 0.9%. So, I mean, <laughs> that's not bad inflation, less than 1% year-over-year. But the core PPI did see an increase of 2.6%. I, I got to say, I mean, that was higher than I was ready for. Uh, but I, I got to say, I wouldn't recommend panicking over one report. I'll definitely be keeping an eye on inflation in the next few months, but I still believe the broader trend will show a decline towards that 2% target, but there's going to be more bumps along the way. I mean, it's not going to be every single month we're going to see a deceleration in year-over-year inflation. It's just not going to happen. Yeah, there are a lot of things to talk about there. I mean, we spent a lot of time on that. I, I do want to move on. And again, you can get this information from our newsletter. Go to our website, smartinvesting2000.com. That's smartinvesting2000.com. Free newsletter right in the middle of the page. Sign up for it there. But I got to move on because I know our financial planner, Harrison, is uh, waiting here with us. He's going to be talking about health insurance before Medicare. Harrison, you with us? I am. How you guys doing? Well, good, good. We kind of cut your time a little bit. So I, I want to let you go and talk about this because this is very important. It is. So most people become eligible for Medicare at age 65. With Medicare, you have a Part B premium, which this year's about $175 a month. And then you'll have potential additional premiums, maybe up to $200 or so, depending if you go to a Medicare Advantage plan or a Medicare supplement plan. Now, if you retire before age 65, health insurance can be a lot more expensive and potentially range into the thousands of dollars per month. And for a lot of people, that's a major factor why they would consider delaying retirement. However, with the correct planning ahead of time, it's possible to retire early without being subject to those exorbitant insurance premiums. So when purchasing health insurance through the health insurance marketplace, um, the actual premium that you're gonna pay is gonna be based on your income when you're younger than 65. So this means if you can keep your income lower, you can qualify for the same level of coverage, but at a much lower cost. So some ways to keep income low is to keep extra cash, taxable brokerage accounts, Roth accounts available as withdrawals from those accounts are not considered income. Therefore, if you have these types of assets, you can use those assets to cover living expenses until you reach Medicare at age 65. So you can keep your health insurance premiums low, but also your federal and state income taxes low. This also means it might be necessary to defer other types of income like social security, pensions, capital gains, pre-tax retirement account withdrawals, uh, Roth conversions until you reach age 65. So when you sign up for the health insurance, there's a lot of different plans available. They all have their own premiums based on your income. So it's important to make sure you choose the right plan that will cover your health needs. But again, with the right planning, you can be flexible with how you structure your income in between that gap of retirement and 65 to um, be able to retire early and not pay too much in health insurance costs. So, so Harrison, there's a lot to this here. And, and, and again, you're a financial planner. When people come in and they sit down with you, I mean, how many times you run across this situation that people uh, maybe did the wrong thing or think you're doing the wrong thing? Well, it, it, it's common for people to retire before age 65. And this is a concern that a lot of those people have is, okay, so I'm covered through my health insurance at work, but if I retire and I'm you know, 62, let's say, you're eligible for social security, but you're not eligible for Medicare yet. And so the big question is, well, you know, I've heard that insurance premiums might be $1,000, $2,000 a month. We can't afford that in our budget in addition to 
you know, your mortgage, your property taxes, your other living expenses, travel that you might want to do. So a lot of people don't think it's even possible to be able to consider retiring before age 65. But again, if you can ahead of time make sure that you have the income sources set up correctly, there's a lot that can be done to reduce that $2,000 a month health insurance premium down to maybe a couple hundred bucks. So there's a lot of savings. You just have to look at it ahead of time. Yeah, and I know this is something we always talk about. I mean, uh, not all income is created created equal, essentially. And I mean, I, I think that's the big thing that a lot of people miss is not understanding what types of accounts to pull from and, and when to pull them from, essentially. Well, yeah, people will say, well, I can't live on that. I'm not saying that you need to. I'm just saying that on paper, we want your income to look small, but that doesn't mean you're going to be you know, only spending that amount. We just need to withdraw from other sources of income that are taxed at a lower rate or not taxable at all. So that way you can still have, you know, a high level of cash flow. It just looks small enough on paper so you can qualify for extra credits to reduce your health costs and, you know, reduce your overall tax liability. You know, Harrison, a lot of people don't realize you do a little bit here, a little bit there, a little bit there. And all of a sudden it really adds up to where you can have a pretty decent retirement if you're looking at all these different things together, which a lot of financial planners don't. They're just trying to sell people mutual funds. One of the things I do when I'm meeting with someone is I say, okay, based on all the things that we've talked about, if you go forward with this, this is what your monthly after-tax income is expected to be. And in almost every case, that number is a lot higher than what people expect. And so, um, again, there's a lot of value in taking the time to set up those assets and incomes correctly. Um, because again, you know, I, I show that number. Really, that's that's we can retire right now with that much. Yeah, you know, there's a lot more flexibility in retirement, and so how you structure all that makes a big difference. And if if you go about it wrong, unfortunately, you're going to make mistakes, and you're probably not going to realize those mistakes. So really, you're just going to be paying more taxes than you need to, and most likely living on less than you than you need to. And I would say as well, just real quick, is that when you retire and you make mistakes, it's much harder to recoup those <laughs> mistakes because well, you, you don't want to go back to work. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's exactly it. Once you retire, it's it's tough to go back. So you want to make sure you get it right the first time. Great. Well, Harrison, thank you very much. Uh, we appreciate it. We'll see you on Monday. Thanks, guys. We'll see you Monday. Okay, bye-bye. Again, as Harrison Johnson. He is our uh, CFP. He's our financial planner at our office. He is a fee-based planner. He does not sell any product. He's not in commissions. He's not going to try to sell you annuities or life insurance. As you can hear, he's very detailed about looking at a financial plan for you. He listens a lot to you. So uh, take advantage of the free consultation with him. Call the office, 858-224-0004. Again, that's 858-224-0004. Or easy, go to the website, smartinvesting2000.com. That's smartinvesting2000.com. You send an email, set up that free consultation. I'm sure you're going to find it very helpful. And if you have a financial planner now, come in, do some comparison shopping. So. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 I know we just had a he had a meeting with somebody this past week, and I mean, he was in there for like two, two and a half hours, just kind of going over everything, making sure they understood why they're doing. It. And I, I think that's a big thing he does too. Is he explains the why. Yeah, why you should do this, and a lot of times it's not just do this; it's well, why. You know, I, I, he's very detail oriented, and he's a great teacher and great listener. And I can't tell you, no people come out from his office. Mine's right next to his. Wow, I can't believe how much he told me, how much I learned from him. So, all right, uh, we got to take a quick break here. When you come back, uh, we'll be right back. Stay with us. You're listening to the Smart Investing Show with Brent and Chase. Stay with us. Back in high school, 
Alrighty, welcome back to some more investing show. We're gonna go over a couple of companies here for you. Gonna start off with Arm Holdings. Now, Arm Holdings did report earnings and the demand for Arm chip designs. December quarter sales and profit uh, beat forecast by gosh, eight percent, eighteen percent respectively. So we thought, let's take a look at this company to see what's it going for. Is it worth getting into or not? So let's take a look at Arm Holdings They're in the semiconductor industry. Their symbol is ARM. Uh, not much a short float here. Well, it's kind of getting close. It's 8.4%. I get about 10%. I get a little bit concerned here. Uh, we do see that the PE ratio, well, it's over 500 times earnings. The industry is at 55.8. Wow. Price to sales, 44.9 versus 9.1. Price to book value, 41, which sounds high. But the industry, well, that's 337. And then price of cash flow, 145 versus 29. The peg ratio, which tells, again, what you're paying with the future growth of the company, 2.8 above the industry at 2.1. So the valuation ratios do scare me quite a bit. Uh, we show no earnings, no sales. Now, it's possible they reported earnings uh, over a week ago. It's possible the data has not been released yet because we do rely on the actual data. So nothing there. Sorry about that. Uh, same thing. They do not pay a dividend. No surprise there. A growth company. Uh, here's one that's surprising. The five-year estimated growth rate, and this is why the stock trades where it does, 40.9%. Not as good as the industry growth at 472 very high numbers here. Look at the balance sheet. Uh, current ratio, 4.2 versus 3.1. That's a positive. A lot of liquidity there. Debt to equity, zero versus 0.5. We do see a net profit margin of only 2.9%, well below the industry at 17.4. Return on equity is only 1.7%. The industry is at 32.1. And uh, return on invested capital, 1.6% versus 25. This is a growth company, so the numbers won't be quite as good. But Chase, you should have some good numbers with the growth going forward. Yeah, well, we'll start off here with the current price for, again, Arm Holdings. Ticker symbol is ARM. It's $128.34. I mean, here's where the numbers get pretty crazy. 52-week range, the low is $46.50. The high, $164. I mean, after they reported earnings, it just... It was crazy. I mean, it shot up, and I think it shot up again the next day, and obviously it hit 164, and that's pulled all the way back to 128. Uh, over the last month, the stock's up 88%. I mean, wow. it was a huge increase in that two-day two, two day period, essentially, I remember seeing. Uh, but here's what I see. I go out to March 2025. I see estimated earnings of $1.51. I mean, that gives us a target sell price, it's almost laughable, of $25. You know, <laughs> what's amazing, I mean, the stock jumped up so much, had such great earnings. Going back 90 days, and we're looking at March 2025, the estimated earnings were $1.39. I think you said they're now $1.53. That's an increase of, what, like 10%? Yeah. I mean, you know, this is the hype that gets into the market and these growth companies. Is it just pushing them up dramatically to where you're kind of setting yourself up for failure? Now, it is possible this could, could continue on, but I can't justify uh, that type of, of growth in this company. Well, and the other thing you have to understand with ARM is SoftBank and their stake in it. What, what is it? SoftBank, the oh, Soft Japanese Bank. firm. Okay. Yeah. Uh, after the IPO, SoftBank actually still owns more than 90% of ARM shares. So Ooh. what happens is they only floated a small portion of ARM. So now you have essentially investors fighting over less shares. 
which creates, I'm going to say, illiquidity, which then creates this kind of craziness that you see. And I, I just saw this article on Barron's. I haven't read it, but I thought this was interesting. Uh, according to the, the recent surge, Arm now has a market capitalization of $145 billion. SoftBank stake would actually be worth more than $129 billion, but SoftBank's own market cap is $84 billion. <laughs> and I would say it's it's more of the craziness with Arm, not that SoftBank is undervalued. I think that Arm is just, it's just crazy, but that's what happens. It's, it's like when you have less shares out there, it creates less of a normalized market, which can create these crazy distortions in the short term in the stock price. And, and you know, and it, it, these are just things you have to be careful of. And, and I didn't SoftBank, I want to say two years ago, had some major problems. They had some terrible investments. Do you remember that? Oh, yeah. I, I Well, I, the big one that they failed on was WeWork. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. So uh, I, I, I'm not sure how they justify what they do, but uh, this could be their downfall. Because again, we are waiting for a, I'm going to say a major correction on the technology side of these companies because they've just done nothing but gone up and there's really no reason for it. Yeah, they, they had great earnings, but way, way overpriced. Wonder, I mean, Arm, I know they do a, a great job when it comes to the, the chip industry. I mean, mm-hmm. it's not like they're a bad business, but you just go back over history and uh, bring up the tech boom and bust again. Oh, it's not like the tech boom and bust. I'll tell you right now, Microsoft, Cisco, Qualcomm, Intel. How is it not like the tech boom and bust? Those companies were all great companies back in the year 2000. They were just too expensive. Yeah. I, and I mean, the, the stock prices fell like crazy. I, I, I just, you can't, trade at these valuations forever and the growth would just have to be astronomical for the next 5 10 15 years to have you catch back up to a more normalized trading value essentially if you're looking at the multiples that you're paying for these companies and it it just i don't see how it lasts is the moral of the story and many years ago when i decided to do value investing the reason i didn't do well the reason i do value investing is because you can get the numbers you can have something to hold on to you can see a target buy price a target sell price it gives you something to hold on to because every stock will go up and down when it goes down you say well wait a minute here here's the earnings you know we're going to sell 16.6 times earnings with a growth you have nothing to hold on to it's just kind of like a guessing game like oh i think it's going to do well and it does like nvidia you were right on nvidia congratulations well you've been right so far so far there we go (laughs) but 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 you're, you're correct is that it may not last, and then you have no reason. This is why I've seen so many people in growth investing, again, doing this for 40 years, would they have lost their shirt at different times because they had nothing fundamentally to hold on to, and that's why I, I don't do growth investing. We'll talk about it from time to time here on the show in different companies like Arm, but if you hold it or looking at buying it, we're going to give you reasons like you be careful. Be careful. There you go. Uh, moving on, let's, let's talk about uh, something because I, I heard this that with the electric cars, which actually is kind of slowing down, a lot of copper is being used. And we're looking at Freeport MacMoran. I just love when you look at the way this is spelled. It looks so funny. Big M, little C, big M, little O, then RAM with a capital R. It just looks very funny. Uh, Their symbol is MCX. They're expected to sell 4.1 billion pounds of copper in 2024. That's a lot of copper. Oh yeah, I mean, I, it's it's a ton. I, I was kind of looking up at at the uses of copper, and and actually, I didn't know this. You know what the the most common? This is 2019. I was 
trying to see real quickly if there's anything, but the most common use for copper back then? It's not pennies anymore. I don't think pennies use copper anymore. No, is it? no not that. <laughs> well, it used to be wiring, I think. Uh, what is building it? construction. A building construction. About 43%, yeah. and this is, again, based off 2019, about 43% of copper use came from building construction. And, and I know, I mean, EV sales have slowed down, but I know there's a lot of copper inside those EV cars because of all the components, uh, the, the battery. So, yeah. Yeah. So, well, let's take a look at the numbers at, uh, again, Freeport Mac Moran. Their symbol is MC. They are in the industry of, no surprise, copper. Only 1% shares on the float side, so no one's shorting this this stock at all. Uh, the PE ratio, kind of high, 30.3 versus 24.3. Price of sales, 2.5 versus 1.1. Price to book value, 3.3 versus 14.1. So, Freeport Mac Moran looks pretty good there. And then price of cash flow, 10.6 versus 10.9. Unfortunately, no peg ratio for the company or the industry. Now, we do see, unfortunately, earnings fell by 37.2% over the last year. Industry was down 15.6. Sales over the last year for Freeport were only up, no, actually down 0.3%, but the industry was down 3.7. And the five-year growth rate, uh, a negative 1.1, which is good, compare the industry at a negative 20.4. So either building's gonna be coming down or the EV's coming down, but they're not seeing much here for for uh, the industry going forward. Uh, they do pay a small dividend, eh, not really small, but okay dividend, 1.6%, use 40% of their earnings to pay that out. Uh, we do see that the uh, current ratio, 2.9, same as the industry, debt to equity, 0.6 versus 0.7, that's okay. Net profit margin, 9.5. Uh, better than the industry at 5.9. Return to equity, 13.1 versus 18.3. And Chase, I'm, I'm disappointed. I was kind of hoping to see some good numbers here. Maybe you got something good going forward, but I, I'm not very, getting very excited about this as I thought I was going to. I remember we looked at Freeport McMoran, uh, gosh, maybe it was a year or two ago, kind of just curious on the whole EV hype. And one of the interesting things about Freeport, I remember they have a lot of copper that like essentially they have under the ground still. They had a lot of copper yeah. reserves. So, I mean, they... They definitely have the asset there, I guess. Uh, just a question of how much can they deploy to make that profitable. And I mean, I was looking and yeah, I mean, the, the stock hasn't really done much over the last year. It's actually down about 10%. I mean, current price for Freeport, about $38.83. I see the 52-week range here, the low, $32.77, and the high's been, well, $44.53. I'm going to say, unfortunately, we go out to December 2025. I see estimated earnings per share of $2.15. That gives us a target sell price here of $35.69. So actually below the current price, $38.83. And I, I, I mean, that's that's even assuming pretty good growth because 2024, they're looking for earnings growth of just about 1.5%. You get estimated earnings of $1.56. And then 2025, it again, jumps up that two fifteen, which is growth of about 37.8%. So that is assuming decent growth in those those profits for Freeport. I, I'm, not, I'm not liking it. I'm going to say that. Hey, and, and you know, there's certain stories, and this is a lesson that, that uh, you know, I always tell people. Um, this client, potential client came in, and I forget how much they had. They had a lot of shares of Freeport McMoran. And she goes, well, it was my, my mother's. I don't want to sell it because she said never to sell it. At that time, it was around $100 a share. And I said, you should never, ever hold an investment because your parents or your grandparents, whoever it was, held it forever. You need to stop now and look, say, well, what is the worth of it now? And again, that was years ago. Uh, I do see that the 10-year the return on it is only 33.5%. So I'm sure that, I, I hope that woman eventually sold it because 
you never ever should hold a investment just because your parents or grandparents held it and they held it forever. Uh, bad investment decision there. Yeah. I, I mean, it, it just, I mean, businesses change so much throughout lifetimes. And I mean, you, you see that example time and time again, where, you know, a, a lot of um, elderly people, they, they liked AT&T, they liked mm-hmm. GE. I mean, and you know, I, I, GE as of late has done pretty well, but if you just held that forever, yeah. I mean, you had a period where you haven't made money for quite a while. You know, that's why we had uh, 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 clients come in yesterday and, um, and they said, you do your numbers every Monday? I said, yeah, and because you have to stay on top of this to understand what is changing on that. And sometimes it'll change a little bit of time, sometimes a lot. You have to stay on top of that. And that's what we do as advisors. We actually look at this stuff and we love doing it. But every single Monday, we do our Monday numbers to make sure that, yes, these are businesses we still want to hold. And right now, it's a very busy time for us kind of winding down somewhat, but earnings have been coming out. Listen to conference calls. I get so excited listening to those. Yeah, and I mean, I was just going to say, I kind of use that example of GE. Back in 2000, uh, the price has been adjusted because of reverse splits and so forth. But back in 2000, GE was at a split-adjusted price of $355.55. Today, it's at $149.16. So... Moral of the story, don't hold (laughs) anything forever just because your parents or grandparents held it. Businesses change. You want to be able to change and adapt when that change occurs. Yep, and make sure you get somebody that knows what you're talking about because we have seen a lot of people like, oh, yeah, just keep holding it. It's good. No, no, you got to have reasons for that. All right, uh, time to talk about uh, mortgages because uh, actually things are changing there. For that, we're going to go to Robert Behek, president of Countywide Mortgage Lending. Robert, how are you doing this morning? Morning, gentlemen. So what are you saying about my Kodak stock? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I told you to get rid of that a long time ago, Robert. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, you're talking about, because, you know, we talked about the CPI and the PPI that, that came out. I think that affected mortgage rates. Is that what happened to you? It, it did, absolutely. This week they came in, both of them, stronger than expected. PPI is a part of the PCE number that the Fed looks at. And we have eight Federal Reserve meetings a year. We burnt through one already. The next one's the end of uh, March. And right now, it doesn't look like we're going to get another rate cut uh, through that meeting. So now they're kicking it out to you know June. Um, that being said, with only six meetings left, and they're talking somewhere between a, still a, a 100 to 200 basis point in total cuts. It's going to get interesting pretty quick in the next couple of months. But right now, rates are up a little bit. And, and Robert, uh, you know, you got the short-term rates, you got the 10-year Treasury, you've got 30-year bonds, you got the SOFA. I mean, you got all these different things. If someone's looking at buying a house or refinancing. What should they be looking at to try to get an idea of where rates are and what they're going to be paying for their mortgage? So we use mortgage-backed securities along with a 10-year note. And historically, if you took the 10-year and you added 2% to it, that's where 30-year fixed rates should be at par, at zero points. That's not where they're at today because (laughs) there is still a lot of – extra built into the system because servicers are afraid of that spread. But once it starts to settle down a little bit, we'll start to see those come back in. So 10-year note, 2% over. 10-year note, 2% over. And I do wonder, I mean, uh, is there any 
research that you have that talks about like the quantitative tightening that we've gone through. I know they're letting the, oh. the balance sheet run off. And is that maybe part of the reason why we're seeing a larger spread between the tenure and the mortgage-backed securities? You nailed it, Chase. Absolutely. There, there, There's a lot of fear. Servicers don't know how to play that. And we have a lot of maturity coming to market, about $10 trillion here in the next five to six months that's going to need to be refinanced. And it's going to come in at a much higher interest rate than what it's maturing at. So where does that come from? You're going to have to uh, create some more debt to pay for it. Yeah, it's funny because I just everybody always talks about the rate cuts, but the quantitative yep. tightening and the quantitative <laughs> easing, I feel like is it's so much more complicated, frankly. But I think that has such a big impact, especially on these rates. But I, I think a lot of people don't necessarily know exactly what that means. And uh, I think that's super helpful for people to understand. 35 years of doing this, it is uh, very technical. And the reality is people like to look up on the internet and see what it says. But, you know, there's, there's a lot of lost leaders out there, unfortunately. And Robert, as far as servicing goes, when I mean, you have these companies, there's times when they say, you know what, we really just don't want to lend money now, we're concerned. So they will add onto the rate as well because, well, we don't have to do it, so we're going to raise the rate. Does that happen as well? It does. So think about it this way. It costs money every time they do a loan, and they've got to set up your payments and track your taxes and your insurance. And if rates were to fall very quickly, you're going to refinance and pay them off. Well, they just lost a whole bunch of money doing it. So right now, lenders are looking at every loan they do just to see how long it's going to stay on the books because they can't charge a prepayment penalty in California. Interesting. Well, I did want to say one thing. I mean, because you brought up the number here, I want to give that to people. Is right now the ten years at I think I saw it at four three. So you had you know two points of that. That'd be six three, which doesn't sound that bad. So if we could get to you know more normalized kind of spread there, I mean it, it'd be I think pretty beneficial for mortgage rates. And I know it's going to change come Monday or Tuesday, but what's yeah. right now? <laughs> and. Right now, Chase, it's more like 3%. So it, you're going to be around 7.3 is where the real markets are today instead of 6.3. So, yeah, we need to get those spreads down, and it all comes to that refinancing of the debt for sure. And, Robert, this is something you do for people is that you're kind of looking at what to do. And obviously you want to buy that house, you want to refinance. You sometimes have to be patient, but also, too, you want to get it done. So that's what you do uh, at uh, Countywide Mortgage Lending to get them the best rates that they can. Absolutely. How do they get hold of you, Robert? My cell phone is 760-443-3821. That number again is 760-443-3821. Or you can go directly to our website at countywidemtg.com. That again, countywidemtg.com. Great. Well, Robert, thank you very much. We appreciate it. And uh, you have a good weekend. We'll see you. We'll not see you, but we'll talk to you next week. We'll talk to you soon. Okay, bye-bye. Again, as Robert B. Hick, president of Countywide Mortgage Lending. You can give him a call at 760-443-3821. Again, that's 760-443-3821. That's a cell phone. I'll go directly to him. Yeah, and then uh, Countywide Mortgage Lending is a division of Golden Empire Mortgage, Inc., NMLS number number. Uh, 1104585, licensed by the Department of Financial Protection and Innovation under the California Residential Mortgage Lending Act. Countywide Mortgage Lending is an equal housing lender and proud member of the BBB. 
All right, let's move on here. I, I, you know, the luxury market has been doing extremely well. I, I'm, I'm not gonna say this year. I, I think it kind of picked up. It kind of pulled back and then it picked up. Yeah. And you know, I think. I mean, last year, I think that's when a lot of the excitement around like Louis Vuitton, LVMH. I, I think that's when. It, it, I think uh, Bernardo Nault, the the owner founder of Louis Vuitton. I think he was the richest man in the world. I think that was last year, yeah. maybe two years ago. Yeah, he's he surpassed uh, Elon Musk. Yeah. yeah. So I don't know if that's still the case, though. Oh, okay. Well, let's talk, to, talk about Ralph Lauren because they're a, and I like them because they're not that expensive, but yet they still have that nice name to them. Uh, they did report earnings per share of four dollars and seventeen cents, which beat the uh, forecast for December quarter by seventeen percent on just a six percent rise on the sales for the luxury uh, company here. Let's see if there's something here because apparel is doing pretty well. You got something? I did just want to confirm. Uh, I guess Forbes has a real-time billionaires list and Bernard Alnault is worth 221 billion essentially ahead of Elon Musk at 205 billion and Jeff Bezos at 191 billion. Am I on that list yet? Uh, no. <laughs> oh, shoot. Okay, I'll keep working harder. All righty. Let's take a look at Ralph Lauren. Their symbol is RL. They are in the industry of apparel manufacturing. Uh, wow, there's a lot of float on this, 13.5% on the short side. That surprises me based on the industry. Uh, we do have a PE ratio. Not too bad, 20.5 versus 33.8. Price to sales, 1.8 versus 1.1. Price to book value, 7.3 versus 18.3. That's a positive, but price to cash flow is expensive, 12.6 versus 9.9. And then the peg ratio, lower the number the better, 1.4 versus 12.4. Now, look at their earnings over the last year. They are up 18.2%, better than the industry, up 16.3. Their sales grew by only 2.8% over the past year, while the industry is up 3.7. This five-year growth rate is phenomenal for Ralph Lauren. It's 13.6%. That far surpasses the industry growth rate at 3.7%. You get a dividend rate of 1.7%. Uh, they only use 33 and a third uh, of their, their uh, earnings to pay that out. Uh, we do see on the balance sheet, you got a current ratio here of uh, 1.5 versus 1. Uh, I'm sorry, that's a quick ratio. The current ratio, 2.2 versus 1.8. Debt to equity, 1.1 versus 1.2. I'm okay with that. Net profit margin, 8.9, well above the industry at 3.5. Return on equity, very good. 22.9 versus 13.5. So, Chase, you're going to disappoint me here and say it's not worth it. Yeah. Let's see what you got going forward. <laughs> well, current price here for, again, Ralph Lauren, their ticker symbol RL, $180.85. 52 week range here, $103.17. And the high, right near the high. I mean, I know they reported earnings, and uh, I guess Wall Street liked it because the 52 week high here, $183.04. I see year to date, the stock's up about 25%. So, it's done pretty darn well. I go forward, though. I go to, let's see, they report on a fiscal basis. So March 2025, I do see estimated earnings per share up $11.09. And unfortunately, that gives it a target sell price of just $184.09, just barely above the current price of, again, about $180, $181 per share. So based on that, I mean, if you hold old Ralph Lauren, you may want to be looking to hit the sell button pretty quick here. And I did notice, too, on those uh, numbers going out to April 2025, the range of analysts, we kind of talked about this earlier in the show with NVIDIA, 
they're pretty high. The low estimates are 1031, the highs 1278. It's kind of a big range on the 16 analysts. So that tells us that they're not really convinced on those numbers. Yeah, and I will say, I mean, um, their fiscal year is coming up pretty quickly. And I go out to 2026 here uh, because we will be looking at those numbers in just a few months. I mean, that does jump up to $12.66, but it's still a Ford PE of like $14 and not $14, excuse me, a Ford PE of 14.31. So, I mean, it's still not, I'm going to say, overly enticing. I do think you, you got to be on watch here. If this did hit, again, around $184, $185 a share, I, I would look at potentially selling this company if I did hold it. Yeah, it, it's just, yeah. And and I, I and I also wonder, too, I mean, you see in these malls, you go into the Louis Vuittons, you go into the, the Gucci's, and you see people many times lined up trying to get in, like, where is this money coming from? Yeah, I mean, it, it's that's the one thing, too, you got to understand about the luxury market is the dichotomy there between, yeah. you know, you, you have, I'm trying to think of the very low end, but, you know, you have your target bags, yeah. <laughs> which, you know, nothing wrong with that. But then you have, you know, your kind of like Coach, Kate Spade, uh, Michael Kors, Ralph Lauren, and then you have your European luxury, which yeah. is, you know, what is it, Hermes or Herms? I don't even yeah. know how you say it. Yeah. Um, you know, you Chanel. have your Chanel, you have your um, Louis Vuitton. So, I mean, Ralph Lauren, I don't think necessarily is playing in that game against Louis yeah. Vuitton, but, you know, it still is a, a premium product at the end of the day, and it, it, it's more expensive than if you just, you know, get your clothes from Walmart or Target. Yeah, and I, and I think the economy will continue well in 2024 and 2025, and I've said that because we did some research and found out there's trillions and trillions of dollars liquid on the sidelines that I think will last for years and the strong job market will keep us going. So that can change as it goes on. We'll keep him posted on that. But right now, I think we've got two good years coming up in the economy. Yeah. I mean, I, I, we saw retail sales come out this past week as well. And, you know, they, they weren't as strong as anticipated, but I think that should bode well for the potential of maybe quantitative no longer doing as strong of quantitative tightening, maybe some rate cuts. But, I mean, the retail sales, I think, year over year, it still grew by close to a percent. I mean, it wasn't anything that set the world on fire, but we still saw some growth in the economy. And that's what I think we'll continue to see. You're not going to see, you know, there has been est- estimations of good GDP growth, but I think it's going to be subdued. But yeah. you're not going to see a contraction, I don't believe. And, you know, Chase, I would rather have a 2 to 3% GDP growth each year than a 5% or a 6% growth because that means you're probably going to have a big decline the next year. And that causes too, too much volatility. So I, I like a 2 to 3% growth on the GDP. It gives you a stable. Stable. It gives you some comfort feeling that, you know, it's like sometimes boring is good. Yeah, I mean, it, it's consistent. Yeah, it is consistent. So and I, I think we'll see that going forward uh, with that. And, and again, I, I see nothing's going to change that going forward. Now, oh, there is something big happening uh, this year in November. What, what's <laughs> happening in November? I, <laughs> yeah. I, I'm starting to see a lot of political ads already. I yeah. mean, it, it's, you know, I and I have Sling TV and I'm getting served. I mean, this one lady, I, I she's running for Senate and I'm just like, Jeez, how much are you targeting me for? Like, <laughs> you know, it's, and I we talked about this on the show. I, I think a couple of months ago, uh, for this election year, that the number I believe that was going to be spent for this election year was like seventeen billion dollars. And we said you're going to see a lot of ads, and they're starting already. I might send an email saying I'm not voting for you. Stop sending me these ads. <laughs> Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> All right, there's the closing bell. Thank you for listening to the Smart Investing Show. It is for informational purposes only and should not be used as investment advice. If you'd like to discuss in more detail your investment needs, have other investment questions, feel free to call myself Brett Wilsey or Chase Wilsey at 858 
254-0004. Again, that's 858-224-0004. Or visit that website, smartinvesting2000.com. That's smartinvesting2000.com. You can also listen to the podcast there if you missed any part of the show. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week. To think that I did all that And may I say